Well, good evening, gents. Well, you are in a treat for tonight. Um, as Neil had said, we have a very special guest. It is one of the few Q&As that we do throughout the, the year, and we always have a cherished guest uh, to help us sort of focus in on a specific topic. Um, and tonight we are focusing in on the topic of spiritual leadership. And we're in for a treat because we had, as Neil said, uh, Chris Hamilton with us. He is a senior elder. I don't think he was calling you old, Chris. I think he was just saying you're... you're I'm old. Okay, well. <laughs> but Chris is the chairman of the elder board. So he's a senior elder, and uh, it's a joy and privilege to have you here. But I think it might be also an, a good opportunity, not just to jump necessarily into the Q&A, but to really just take a few minutes for us to get to know you, Chris. Um, we are a church that affirms and holds tight to the proper biblical model of a plurality of elders. Uh, that is the biblical model for churches, and we take pride in that, and that's the Lord's design. So we should know these men. We should cherish these men, as Neil said. Um, so let's get to know you a little bit, Chris. Um, you are the chairman of the board. You've been here at Grace Church for how long? I started attending Grace Church in 1970. There was a new young pastor here that some of you might know, and um, I was in first grade, and we were going to a church in Glendale at the time, and uh, my parents made the decision to come here. And, um, but for nine years when I attended a church in Simi Valley, uh, I've been here uh, since 1970. Wow, amazing. So essentially, we have the, the sort of the phrase, I don't know if you've ever heard it here at Grace, but it's called a grace baby. Those who have been brought up and raised here from a very early age, the grace babies. So I think you're technically a grace baby, Chris. Yeah. Probably I'm a so. grace old man. <laughs> Senior. Thanks, Neil. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the ideal progression. Grace baby to grace senior. Um, and Chris, how long have you been an, an elder with us here at, at Grace? Uh, I think I got to remember is 2004, I think, is when I um, became an elder here. Um, Might have been a year before that. Well, 2004, so we're encroaching on 20 years. That's amazing. So, it is amazing. Time flies. Yeah, thank you for that. And um, so how about a little bit about yourself? You're a married man. You have a family. Maybe you can tell us just a tiny bit. I believe you and your wife met here at Grace. Is that correct? We did. We met in the gym, um, uh, the family center. Yeah, we were in the college group together. Um, and for some reason, by God's great kindness to me, and maybe to her detriment, she consented to marry me. And... Um, he gave us uh, three daughters, uh, Katie, Laura, and Sarah. Um, my oldest daughter is married to Colton, who may be here tonight. I'm, see, I don't know if he's here. Um, good man, one of my favorite men on the face of the planet, and they have uh, five kids. My uh, middle daughter works in Washington, D.C. My youngest daughter married a seminary student who graduated Sunday, and uh, they left yesterday morning for um, a church in Hawaii where he's going to be um, pastoring. So he came, he stole my daughter's heart, and then he took my two grandchildren to Oahu. So we're still grieving over that. Yeah, Spencer, he's a wonderful guy. He was on staff here for many years, and now he's going to suffer for the cause of Christ in Hawaii. And I'm going to go over and visit to suffer to with them That's every right. once in a while. That's right. That's right. Excellent. Um, excellent. Chris, thank you. You've clearly seen so much from 1970 till now. I mean, that's basically the beginning of Pastor John's ministry. Um, maybe you can touch on, since that's a, a unique 
thing to have seen the church in so many different forms. Maybe you can sort of reflect on any neat memories that might be interesting to all of us as you've, you must have seen so many changes. Maybe you can reflect a little bit on those. Yeah, I, um, you know, the early years, I don't remember much except this. I remember sitting, listening to John preach and he taught me how to study the word of God. Um, I figured out fairly early on that what John was doing was identifying the nouns, the verbs, the adjectives, and the adverbs. And if you nailed that, you could probably outline a passage. And I think that's the legacy of John, is teaching thousands of us that um, the understanding and the meaning of Scripture um, is within reach, and we have an obligation to work for that and to reach for that. And I've always um, appreciated that. Um, I remember when this was being built and this room was filled with scaffolding. And I remember that because um, my good buddies, who will remain unnamed at this point, and I used to ditch Wednesday night junior high and play hide and seek in this room um, while it was under construction. And um, unfortunately, we got caught because one night my friend was running full speed and ran into a crossbar on the... Uh, on the scaffolding and crushed his face and it was pretty hard to hide what was going on. So that was the last time I ditched junior high. Um, um, and you know, another fond memory really is the struggle I went through in my early 20s on whether I was called to full-time ministry. And um, my own father told me he thought maybe I should go to seminary. Of course, I was working for him at the time in his accounting firm, so maybe I should have taken a clue from that. Son, maybe you should go to seminary. Um, but I, I met with my pastor and had a great conversation, and he's actually the one that um, gave me some really wise counsel that, along with everything else, I made the decision not to go to seminary. And um, I've, been in, I've been a lay um, a layman ever since and before that of course but I'm an accountant today I do forensic accounting and that's what I do all day long um, and it's just a joy to be involved in the ministry of the church over and above that and John was very instrumental in my love for the church and my appreciation for those who are in full-time ministry and my desire to be involved in the church um, uh, really from a very young age oh, amen and you're not just a layman. We know that you're involved so much in our church. Um, I know that all of our elders have a station or a ministry that they're involved in or help oversee. And I, I believe that you are involved with the uh, Foundations Group, which is an extension of the College Crossroads Group with Mark Zakevich. It's one area where you serve. But I also know that you have done so many things, including teachings, Sundays in July, and various things. Maybe you can talk about the various sort of ministries you've been involved in and things that you've taught over the years here at Grace. Yeah, and right now, Ann and I are very committed on Sunday mornings to the two-year-olds. Yep, we work in the nursery. We started that in 2020, trying to give relief to the nursery workers so that they could go to church. And now I don't think you could pull us out of there with a team of horses. It's a, it's, um, so we're involved in children's ministry. And uh, what that really means is we love getting to know the parents of those two-year-olds. Um, but I don't teach two-year-olds. That's too intimidating. Um, I, I do teach new members. I've probably met some of you through that. I have a Friday morning group that's been meeting now. I think it's 19 years um, every Friday morning at 6 a.m. And um, um, right now we're about 15 to 20 guys. Uh, an interesting note there, in 2021, 
um, Starbucks, after almost a decade of meeting at the same Starbucks, asked us to go away and not come back. Um, the clientele had had enough of seeing a group of men sitting around um, with their Bibles open. And I have a lot of stories of what has happened over the years at Starbucks. Um, <clears throat> but that's, that's something that I do every Friday morning. Um, I've taught a lot of parenting classes over the years, and, um, and uh, occasionally I go other places and, and preach. I had the great joy of being up in the Squamish Valley in uh, uh, British Columbia this past weekend and preached seven times and did a couple Q&As. And um, I came home very tired because I have to go to work in the morning um, when I come back from something like that. But the Lord's been very kind. And um, um, so I think I've captured everything. Yeah, amen. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Chris. And I highly recommend it, guys. Just a little plug for our Men of the Word page. If you're not familiar with it, we have a resources section. And one of the things we have on the page is a, a sermon search option, which allows you to search sermons across the board, the entire church, uh, ministry-wide, fellowship group-wide. Um, everything is at your fingertips there. So I highly recommend going ahead and typing in Chris Hamilton's name and enjoying some of his sermons and messages he's give you will be blessed. So thank you, Chris. And I hope you guys can see sort of the, uh, the angle that we're doing here since tonight's um, topic is spiritual leadership. And what better uh, person to have than the chairman of the elder board, one of our spiritual leaders um, that we are designed to look up to, learn from, and grow under to help us through this. So, Chris, this year, um, the topic has been the attributes of God. I've and, been listening. Yeah, we've, we're blessed. Obviously, you know um, Dr. Clausen very well. And we are blessed, men. Wouldn't you say we're blessed at the at this church with the men's ministry, with the teaching that we get. You know, thank you, Brad. And um, it's been a tremendous study. I think we would all agree, very convicting, uh, very inf informative. Um, and of course, we want to take everything that Brad is teaching us and imply, apply it to our lives. And we have small groups, as you know, and they spend the time sort of just nailing down how do we apply uh, understanding God's um, attributes to our lives. So hopefully we can spend some time there tonight in terms of leadership. So I think maybe we can start sort of general and then sort of work our way and build into maybe some specifics. Um, maybe you can just tell us from your perspective, Chris, what comes to mind? Why is spiritual leadership so important, uh, especially pertaining to men, right? Husbands, fathers, brothers, churchmen, leaders. Maybe we can talk generally. Yeah. Well, and that's another thing that I didn't mention is um, some of you, uh, several of you actually, just uh, went through the first leadership training class that I think we've done at Grace Church right. in a long time, and that we'll be doing a few more times. And it, it's extraordinarily important um, because as the leadership goes, the church goes. And so that class was designed for people who aspire to leadership in the church. And that doesn't necessarily mean elder um, leadership. It's just leadership in the church. But what comes to mind um, when you say uh, leadership is that not everyone is called to leadership at work. Not everyone is called to leadership in the church. I'm talking about men. Um, but if you are a husband or a, a father, or you aspire to that, um, God called you, starting from creation, to be a leader. And so men don't get to say, I'm not a leader. Um, a man who's married or who has children who says, I'm not a leader, is either in massive rebellion 
um, or he's not, um, he doesn't understand what, how, and why God created a man. God created a man to be married, to be a father, and in those roles to lead his family. So I just, I think it's critically important and um, um, so many men miss out on that non-negotiable. It's not something you get to negotiate on. It's not something you get to choose. It just is. Amen. A biblical mandate to be a leader. I love that. What would you say, Chris, are some critical leadership qualities for the man of God? Well, again, I'm going to answer that from the context of the home because I think that probably applies to everybody here. And again, not everybody's called to be an elder. Not everybody's called to be a Bible study leader but you all are called to lead your home. So, you know, I always think of Deuteronomy 6 when I talk to men about leadership in the home. And in Deuteronomy 6, it's a passage you're probably very familiar with. Um, It says this. Now, this is the command, and and I'm going to read this passage and just highlight all the qualities of of a leader in the home, the leader that all of us are called to be. Verse one, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God, just stopping there, the first characteristic of a leader in the home is he's submissive. Um, It's not just God, it's God who is Lord and he's Lord over all of our lives. The Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. And let's stop there again, A, a leader in the home is a learner. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here tonight because you're all here and you have been here, but a man who aspires to leadership in the home is first a learner. Um, He's commanded me to teach you that you might do them. A leader is obedient. Um, He obeys the Lord, he does what the Lord says. That you might do them in the land where you're going to possess it, so that you, your son, and by the way, I'm just about to read why this is relevant in the home. Um, So that you, your son, and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, and there's humility um, to, to fear the Lord and to teach your son and your grandson to fear the Lord your God, to keep all of his statutes. There's the obedience again, and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life. There's stability. Um, a leader in the home is stable. Um, he knows what his purpose is, and, it goes, and, it, and there's a fidelity there and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one, and here's the next one. A leader in the home loves the Lord. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. This is all self-examination so far. Um, And then verse 7 says that you're a teacher. A leader in the home is a teacher. You don't get to say I'm not a leader, and you don't get to say I'm not a teacher because verse 7 says you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. That's discipleship. A leader in the home is a discipler, a teacher, a trainer. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And that really speaks to an integrity. 
that in every phase of life, um, um, you are living, you believe it first, and then you teach it, and you, you're, that teaching to your children is backed up by a life that you live in front of your children and your spouse. So there's a list of about 10 things, right, in Deuteronomy 6 that I think lays out what a leader is, and it's certainly applicable in the home. Yeah, absolutely. That's wonderful. Thank you, Chris. That's very clear, very good. How can you tie that into, I always think of this, you know, I love thinking about being in pastoral ministry myself, obviously being elder qualified is something in our minds, something that we are taught in seminary. Um, But we know that the elder qualifications ultimately become something that the rest of the church looks up to to follow behind. It's not only qualifications for the elders, but it becomes sort of a pattern for us to look up to but it's the responsibility of the elders to live out. So maybe, can you, can you maybe add some of those qualities to the list of what makes a spiritual leader? Yeah, and just to back up what you're saying, Hebrews 13, uh, 7 says, remember those who led you, and then it defines them. It says, those who led you spoke the word of God to you, and considering the results of their conduct, imitate their faith. And that principle is throughout the Bible. Um, we're all imitators. And Hebrews 13, 7 is interesting because it follows six verses of one of the most concise, potent descriptions of Christian ethics in all of the Bible. It talks about loving people outside the church, people loving, in, uh, loving those who are inside the church. It talks about um, marriage, it talks about moral purity, it talks about fear of man, how you handle money, all of this stuff in the first six verses, and then it says, remember those who led you, who taught you all of that, who spoke the word of God, and then considering the results of their conduct, watch what they do, and then imitate them. And, um, and I don't say that because that just applies to elders, every single one of you who is a father, who is a husband, who is a grandparent. You have an obligation, you have a, a mandate and the high calling of speaking the word of God and then living a life that's an example um, to those who follow, follow you so that they can imitate your faith. And when you get to the elder qualifications, it really is a description for the most part of what every Christian is called to. Um, there's some exceptions. The first qualification of an elder is that you aspire to the office and the work of an elder. That's optional. Not everybody does. And that's a good thing. I don't think we want 6,000 elders. Running an elder meeting would be much more complicated um, with 6,000 people there. Um, um, the other one that's unique is that you need to be able to teach. And not everybody has the spiritual gift of teaching. And so that is not applicable to everybody. But pretty much all the other qualifications for an elder apply to all of us. Whether I'm an elder or not, I have an obligation, if you were to summarize um, the qualifications, one is that you're above reproach. In other words, you live a life um, that is beyond the ability of an accusation to stick. I mean, if you think you're not going to be accused of things, you're dreaming. Um, You can live a perfect life um, and still get accused. And I know that because look at the life of Jesus Christ. I mean, they accused him of being drunk and even demon-possessed. 
being above reproach means that none of that sticks because of the quality of your life. That's the obligation of all of us, whether we're serving as an elder in the church or not. Another umbrella qualification for an elder is that you have a good reputation, which is kind of parallel to that. Um, So all of those qualifications um, are something that we all should be aspiring to. I remember taking the bus. I used to live, I'm talking back in the 70s, lived at the other end of Roscoe, the west end of the San Fernando Valley, and I used to take the bus on Thursday nights once a month, cost me a quarter. I can't believe now that my parents would let me do this, but we lived right off of Roscoe in, uh, in Winnetka. I'd take the bus and get off right here in front of the church and come in and go to the elder meeting. And then if the elder meeting was going long, and they all did it at that time, I would get out to the bus stop before the last bus heading back west. Um, I never missed it, fortunately. I would have been in bad trouble. That story is only relevant to tell you that there are men who were sitting on that elder board who I watched like a hawk. I watched what they did. I listened to what they said. Um, A couple of those guys are still there. Um, John MacArthur being one of them, John Bates, a few other guys. Um, What a heritage, what a gift. And um, I learned so much watching what they did and how they did business. And I had no desire as a young kid to be an elder. Never, ever, ever crossed my mind. I just wanted to be like those men. And I just want you to know if you're living for Christ in your sphere of influence, there's people watching you that you may not know who want to be like you. And it's not something to feed your pride. They want to be like you because they want to be like Christ. And that's, that's the Christian walk. Yeah, and I highly recommend, gentlemen, if you've never attended one of our elders' meetings, there's a, an open to the public section of it, and it's absolutely amazing to sit, sit back and sort of watch you men talk through issues and talk through the future of the church and just to sort of witness, like you said, these men who we are designed to look up to. It's a blessing, and we sing, which is fun as well. Um, Chris, what, since we're sort of... Um, you have mentioned being in the home. Maybe I'll transition a little bit to focus in on that area since many of the men here are husbands and many of the single men desire to be husbands, so it would probably be a good time or a good place to spend some time. Um, we often hear this phrase, servant leader, servant leader. And uh, maybe you can help us understand what it means to be a servant leader. Oftentimes we know that men... We will dig up the strength to be leaders, and it's very strong, and we understand a wife has the responsibility to submit, and oftentimes this can get blurred, if you will, and become messy. Uh, Being in the biblical counseling department, I see it often. But we know that we're called to be servant leaders. Maybe you can help us understand practically in marriage and in family, what does it look like to be a servant leader? Yeah, I mean, I think of the... um the example of Christ, um, I mean, there's the ultimate example of coming to earth to live a perfect life and to die for a bunch of people that um, hated him, um, were opposed to him, were um, children of Satan, it says in Scripture, and yet he gave it all um, to serve us, it says. and I, and I start there because I guess I'm going to go to that famous passage in Ephesians 5. What does it mean 
to serve at home. Um, verse 25 of Ephesians 5, and I know you all have heard this. Um, you ha- you need, we all need to keep hearing this. Husband loves your wives as Christ loved the church. And it, it'll, it takes a lifetime to understand the depths of that statement right there. Um, we're not talking about romantic love. We're talking about love um, that is service and how Christ has served you and I. We come to church every week. You come to men of the word. Um, you go to Sunday school on Sundays, whatever else you do. Ultimately, if you were bo- to boil it down, it is to learn in greater and greater and greater depth the love Christ has for us. And the application of that is that's how we're to love and serve our family. And I say that because that's what this says. We're to love our wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Do you see? It just is over and over and over. If you want to understand the church, understand marriage. If you want to understand marriage, understand the love that Christ has for the church. Um, It's a um, symbiotic um, comparison in Ephesians 5. So serving, there is no end to serving. Um, I read it to you. You are to give yourself up for your wife. Um, I would say the same is true for children, but the most important relationship in the home is husband and wife. That's that When Adam and Eve were created and married, their family was complete. And the same is true for you and your wife and those of you who aspire to be married someday, you aspire to a good thing, may I say. Um, you aspire to a good thing. And um, that woman of your youth, the wife of your youth, as the Bible says, is the focus of your attention, of your love, of your care, of your service for the rest of your life. And it's uh, 24-7. Okay, so it seems as though Christ is the model. Christ came and gave all. So the essence of servant leadership is giving, Mm -hmm. sacrificing and giving. The other person is benefiting. So if these men are servant leaders who are giving to their wives sacrificially all the time uh, in all things, when does the wife need to submit? Well, the wife probably needs to submit at the same time the husband needs to submit because Ephesians 5.25 says, um, uh, well, I'm going to go back up to verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And men, we love that verse, don't we? Um, I'll never forget, Ann and I have been involved in youth ministry, probably most of our marriage, actually. And um, I had a small group in the high school department many years ago. I hope this guy's not sitting in the audience tonight. I understand he's gotten saved and is at Grace Church. But back in the day, he was kind of a scary character. And I remember him in a small group. I don't know if the question was, what's your favorite Bible verse or whatever? And he turned to that verse, and he said he cannot wait to marry a woman and make her, and he went through uh, an extended long description, and some of it was actually quite frightening because I had three single daughters at the time and he was in the high school department. Uh, I 
didn't want them anywhere near him. He described a horrible, awful, terrible life for a woman. Um, and so I, I asked him to jump up and read the verse right before that. And he read it. And the verse right before that says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So I asked him, are you willing to serve other people the way you expect that future wife of yours to serve you? And that's why I say, when do you expect your wife to submit all the time in the same way um, I think God expects us to submit to him all the time? We are all submitters. Um, Genesis 2-7 says that God created us. He breathed life into our nostrils. That's maybe one of the most profound verses in all the Bible because of the implications of that verse. If God created us, he makes the rules. And we submit to him. We submit to his design. We submit to his, um, uh, his rules, if you were. Um, and then when you get married, the picture in Ephesians 5 right after that is that the husband and wife are doing that together. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Um, okay, well, in the context of the home still, where would you say that men go wrong the most? Where is something that you have seen in all of your years where men sort of go wrong most often that we could, as men, keep sort of close to our heart and protect from? Yeah, I think, um, I think it really comes down to the cornerstones of sin. If I, I was to answer that, it would be lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Those are the killers. And of those three, I think um, the one that maybe is most common is the pride of life. Um, that you get married, I see it so often, young men get married and the kids come and they settle down and, and they think they're done. They, they've accomplished uh, what they came here to do without realizing that, no, that's when the game spins up to a whole new level. Um, in the same way, a lot of guys come home from a long day at work, and I've been there, and they think that's the time to put it in neutral and, and settle for the evening. When actually, in reality, a man who's serving his wife and serving his children spins it up a whole different level at the end of that long, hard day. And um, <clears throat> uh, that was certainly an awakening for me. Um, and I think pride, obviously, is the root of all kinds of things. But a man who does not regard his wife highly, who treats her badly, who does not listen to her, um, puts her down, mocks her. Um, that is a man who's so steeped in his pride. Um, a man who believes that his wife is there to replace mom, um, to serve him, to do his laundry and make his meals and make sure that the kids act in such a way that it doesn't annoy him because, my goodness, he's bringing home a paycheck. Um, all of that is rooted in enormous pride. And it's a man who has forgotten where he came from. Um, so, and some of this is autobiographical. I mean, I'm talking about um, all of us uh, on some level that, you know, at some point in our marriage, we probably had to realize we had it wrong and um, that we needed to humble ourselves. Um, and that that, um, that young lady that consented to marry you 
um, is a fellow heir in Christ is precious to the Lord and needed to be treated as if she's precious to you. I think if I was to, on the spur of the moment, that's what comes to mind. Okay. And what would you say, Chris, is, is a really effective way, maybe from your own experiences, for us men to focus on killing that sin, keeping that pride in check? Yeah, and humility is not rooted in our faults. It's easy for us to sit around as men when the ladies aren't around and talk about how um, humble we are because we confront our sin. We, we see what a proud, um, cocky guy I am, or I see that I, I'm, I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that, and therefore I, I, I'm humble. And that's all important. But I think the starting place in humility is different. Um, the starting place in humility is to focus on who God is. Um, that's the starting place. That outside of God, I don't exist. Outside of the kindness of God, I'm going to hell. And not only am I going to hell, but my life here on earth is going to be a taste of that hell. Um, but, but God, in his great kindness and mercy, saved me. And that is the, the starting point for considering humility. <clears throat> and then the weaknesses and the difficulties add on to that discussion. I think that's part of um, what's missing for us if we're running our home the way I described a few minutes ago. I love 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Maybe it's my life verse. Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? That's a pretty profound verse. That kind of cuts us um, to the core. Um, you don't have anything that you haven't been given, and you don't have any reason to view yourself as superior. Those are the, that's the answer to the questions um, out of the Word of God. And I think when we get to that place, um, it, it makes it um, maybe a little bit easier um, to assess ourselves accurately. Yeah, that's good, and that really kind of ties into a little bit, or segues into a little bit about our study this season, which is God's attributes. Mm -hmm. And you're already starting to describe a little bit about how those attributes should and will have an effect on our lives. That's why it's so good that Brad, um, I guess you called him Dr. Clausen. Do we call him Brad or Dr. Clausen? Dr. Brad? We do both. Okay, Dr. Brad. <laughs> By the way, he's not here, so we can talk about him. Um, just a little side note. What an amazing man. And I know you know that and you appreciate that. But I, I just want to say that um, to a room full of men who love Brad. Um, pray for Brad. Thank the Lord for Brad. Um, help Brad. I don't know how he gets it all done. Do you know? No idea. Just no idea. And what a shepherd. Um, um, I, that's a guy I want to be like uh, when I grow up. But I, I love that he's been focusing, that you all have been focusing, and I along with you listening along um, on the recordings to who God is. And I don't know that that's exactly why he did it, but the world really wants us to focus on ourselves and how am I gonna fix myself and what am I gonna do different? And that's important, but the starting point for all of that is who is God and what has he done? And when we understand that, 
and we fall under that, and we submit to that, and we are thankful, humble enough to be thankful for that, that's the starting point. All right. Would you say that there's an attribute of God that sort of sticks out to you, Chris, that, uh, well, all the attributes are equally important, right, and, and equally functioning, um, but would you say that anything sticks out to you or jumps out to you in regards to developing us, affecting us, motivating us as leaders? Well, I'll tell a story, because I think that it's hard to isolate an attribute. Um, when I was in third grade, I was going to um, a Baptist school, Faith Baptist, if anybody's familiar with that school. It's a very legalistic. Uh, they eventually threw the Hamilton family out of that school because we went to Grace Community Church, by the way. Um, they don't like John MacArthur, or they didn't back then. Um, but in third grade, I remember hearing, I went to vacation Bible school there, and they brought in this preacher who preached on revelation and scared me to death. It was hell, fire, and brimstone. Um, and it was what drove me to my knees. As a third grader, I fully comprehended that God was God. I was not. I was a sinner. I knew I needed a Savior. I knew I was going to going to hell. I knew the Bible was the word of God. I, I, I just had embraced all of that. So I met with Mrs. Williams, um, the mother of the star football player on the high school football team. So I, it was impressive to me. But she led me to the Lord. She um, shared the gospel with me. And for the next 10 years, I basically thought I um, had prayed the prayer that I had confessed with my mouth, Jesus is Lord, and I did believe in my heart that he was raised from the dead. And in accordance with Romans 10, 9, I was saved. And I don't doubt that. But I'm a little slow. So about 10 years later is when it started to dawn on me. Now understand, I've been sitting under my pastor's preaching for a long time before the veil started opening. And I started to realize I would never have come to that conclusion if God had not opened my eyes. He touched my heart. And for the rest of my life, I continue to learn the wonders of God's love, I guess is what I'm saying, and his mercy and his grace. To this day, I marvel that he would save Chris Hamilton. Because I promise you, if I was God, I wouldn't save Chris Hamilton. Um, and I don't know if you have ever had that sense in your own heart. What a remarkable, remarkable thing for me. And what a difficult thing to wrap my head around that God would extend mercy, taking me out of darkness, as it says in Scripture, into his marvelous light. It's the grace, but it's also the mercy. Um, Ezekiel 11 talks about how he pulls out the heart of stone and replaces it with the heart of flesh. That's what God did. Um, amazing love, amazing grace, and amazing mercy. Um, so I, I, it's hard to articulate that in one attribute, but he is an amazing God. And I Maybe it's because I'm slow, but to this day, as that truth unfolds, and it continues to unfold, the work that Christ does um, to save us and to preserve us and to sanctify us and eventually to glorify us, it's a remarkable 
Amen. Yeah, I think you just painted a very beautiful picture of a man being humbled. Um, and when should we ever come out of that humble state and boast or, or be some sort of you know, non-biblical, non-serving, non-loving man? It seems like the attributes of God should bring us to a position that we live in and that bases our leadership. Yeah, and, and, and tying it back to, to marriage, uh, you know, I've always seen my relationship with Anne as somewhat of a, a mirror of that gospel, that Anne chose me, and I marvel at that. Uh, she could have married anybody. There's a lot of better options out there. Um, and, and 35 years ago, she set her sights on me, and it's just such a picture of Christ saving us, choosing us, um, and the earthly manifestation of that in my life has been the wonder of being married to a woman who chose me and who has loved me for 35 years so far. Amen. Yeah, wow. That's beautiful. Maybe we can stay put here for a second in the home. Um, Chris, maybe you can talk to us from the fatherly perspective uh, in terms of being a leader in the home, leading our children, and maybe even tying that into living in a culture now where... You know, we don't share with the culture the same sort of conservative Christian values that the culture at some point shared, and it's very much going in the opposite direction, especially with the transgender issues and all of the confusion in the public schools. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that, uh, weighing in on how we should be leaders at the home, and then just generally how men should be leading their children at the home, in the home. Yeah, that's a big question. Yeah, and, and I just spent the weekend talking about that. So I have seven sermons. You want me to go? Yeah, go. No. Um, I, I, you know, to boil it down, I think Deuteronomy 6, we went through that. Hebrews 13, 7, I think, is the model um, of, guys, we have to speak the word of God, and we have to live it. Um, it has to be in our heart first, and our kids have to see that. Um, not in perfection, because they never will see that, but they have to see that we know it, that we believe it, um, and that we, uh, we, we feel passionately that they need to understand it. You cannot save your children. I think that's an important starting place. Um, that's, um, I think that's truth that you know, but it's really hard truth when those beautiful little kids are running around and you do anything for them to be saved. You cannot do it. You, you cannot do it. The other side of that same coin is Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So the good news is whatever you are in your home, you will not, you cannot do any worse than how your children arrived. They're dead spiritually is what I'm talking about. And so your goal is to teach them the fear of God. You're to teach them the wisdom of God, the word of God. Um, you're to teach them obedience to you, not as a means of convenience for you, but as a means of teaching them submission to a God who created them, and then you pray for their salvation. Um, <clears throat> I think that's leadership in the home. I think that's the, the broad purpose of a man who's leading his home. Um, and... Um, I may be wandering off. Have I wandered off the question? No. I have so much in my head. That... Yeah, no, I know. 
<laughs> no, I try to I try to give you questions, or we try to give questions that are sort of specific yet open ended enough, and then we just open the cage and let you go, and okay. that's what we want. So no, it's it's perfect. I did mention just a little bit in light of the current culture yeah. and all of these dr- dramatic and yeah. scary shifts that we're seeing. Yeah, and so let me um, let me say this: the the shift that we're seeing in our culture is not a shift of the lies of Satan, who is the ruler of this world. Do you understand that? Satan rules this world. Um, He's been given permission, um, and he rules this world. If you read Job, even the assault on Job um, was done by Satan. That was under the direction, if you will, the permission of the God of the universe. That's that's how it works. So I want to spend a minute and talk about speaking the word of God, teaching the fear of God, who God is, what he's done, the wisdom of God. I really think it starts in the book of Genesis, that you have to set the thinking of your children. You have to inform them, not with your opinion, not with your politics, that'll all come, of course. Um, They're gonna hear that. But the priority as a dad, the priority as a husband is to speak the word of God. And if you go through Genesis 1, it's really interesting. First of all, the gateway to the Bible is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And do you believe that? It's not a scientific debate there. It's not even a spiritual debate. It's a fact that the God of the universe said he created it. Um, And to start with that submission at the gateway into the Bible sets the tone for everything else that you're going to want to teach your children. If you're going to speak the word of God, you have to believe it is the word of God. And you have to teach it in, a way, in, in that context. Now, your, your children may not conclude that they believe in the word of God, but they need to hear from you that it is the word of God. Genesis 1 goes on to talk about the creation of the heavens and the earth. In verses 9 through 25, it talks about the creation of everything in the heavens, everything on the earth, and everything underneath the surface. So it, it talks about animals and birds and um, mountains and just everything. Starting in verse 26 through verse 31, in really a concise, direct fashion, it goes through that passage of Genesis is God's description, the creator of the universe. He describes man's relationship to all of that. What is a man? What is a human being? You know that question's being asked now. If you have young children and they're in public education, this is unheard of when I was in school or even when my kids were in school. They will be challenged and they will be given definitions of what a human being is that is completely contrary to scripture. And the definition of a human being, by the way, is that um, God said, let us create them in our image, the Imago Deo. We were created in God's image. And it says in 1 Timothy 1, I think it's verse 15, that Jesus came into the, wor- in, uh, into the world to save what? Sinners. The God of the universe sent his son to save sinners. That's people. God sent his son to redeem human beings. Not animals, not the, not the trees, not the mountains, Human beings, everything else is going to burn. And if you, you start there in verse uh, Genesis 1, verse 26, and it goes on and it talks about animals. And by the way, animals are food and clothing. 
They don't have rights. They don't have personality. There's a generation of people that watched, um, you know, animated movies like Lion King, and they thought they were a documentary. Um, unfortunately, um, we have this whole culture that elevates animals. Up, at, I was in Canada this weekend. Unbelievable, um, the worship of animals, the worship of creation over the Creator. It's all established in Genesis that man was to rule over the earth. Um, which, by the way, lays out the, the principle that God created us to work. That was precursed. That was his perfect design. If you're tired from work today, praise the Lord that you have a job and you got to work. Because that's what God created us to do. While you're here, if you have a young family, your wife is at home at work right now, isn't she? And what a blessing that she does that so that you can be here, but also what a blessing she's doing exactly what God's created her to do. She's firmly in God's will. And it just goes on. I'll, I'll stop the uh, commentary on Genesis 1, but I just wanted to, by the way, I can't stop. One more. It says male and female, he created them. There are only two genders. You cannot change your gender and the thought that you would want to, much less that you can, is to place yourself over God and say, what you did was a mistake, and I have the ability to reverse your decision. It is folly. It's pretend. And I said that in Canada this week, and I think it was illegal to say that. And it will soon be illegal to say that here. It's coming very quickly. And when it becomes illegal to say things like that, you need to have laid the foundation with your family, your children, your grandchildren, not your opinions, not that the Democrats are wrong and the Republicans are right or whatever it is, but this is what the God of the universe said when he created the world and he laid it all down in Genesis 1, this is truth. That's speaking the word of God. And that clarity will give your children an advantage in a world where I promise you the goal is to confuse everybody. And I say that because they have successfully confused everybody. And there's even people in the church that are um, thinking and saying things that are just crazy. It's not hard. It's simple. It's clear. It's what God said, and that's what we're going to live by, and, and someday we may have to die for. I don't know. But the next generation is benefited when you speak the word of God. And that's just, that's kind of the starting place and the outline, and you can go from there. Amen. And our church has always standed for that, stood for that, uh, preaching of the word of God. And, and again, we have tremendous resources here at our church, um, so we should be taking advantage. We've been taught, you guys have taught us so well in terms of all of these, so I guess now's the time to double down and really make sure that we are absorbing that truth so we can then give the truth to our families. Uh, Chris, maybe we can talk a little bit about this topic, uh, strength. Men should be strong in today's culture. That's being attacked, right? Everything is uh, masculine toxicity, and all of that is being attacked. Maybe you can talk about strength from a biblical perspective. What does that look like? I love talking about strength from a biblical perspective. Um, in Scripture, when you see the command to be strong, it's usually alongside the wor uh, word courageous, be strong and courageous. And if you want to take your kids to a great study, take them to Deuteronomy 31 and extend it into Joshua 1. And in that, in those, in that 
section of scripture, um, the nation is being handed over from Moses to Joshua. And Joshua was a war hero. They still teach his, uh, his war strategies in war colleges around the world, I understand. He was no shrinking violet. And yet he's told several times by God himself to be strong and courageous. And in every setting in which that is said, and I'll see if I can find a, a concise description, there's just so many in there. It is always in the context of what God is going to do. It's not in the context of, of um, and this is applicable to us, we are called to be strong and courageous, um, not based on our training, our knowledge, our experience, our physical ability, um, none of that matters. Being strong and courageous is always in the context of what God's going to do. It's always associated with a promise. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm just going to start reading the beginning of Deuteronomy 31, verse 3. It's the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you just as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them just as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites and their land when he destroyed them. The Lord will deliver them up before you. Hearing a theme here? God's doing all the work here. The Lord will deliver them up before you and you shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. Verse six, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Manhood is all about obeying and obeying. And let the Lord do what the Lord's gonna do. That's what he just said. I'm gonna do all of this. Verse five, the Lord will deliver them up before you um, and you shall do according to what I've commanded. That's obedience, be strong and courageous. Um, I love 2 Samuel 10. Um, this is a great one to take your sons through if they like a good story. But basically the story is that um, these guys are surrounded um, in a battle. There's a battle coming and uh, verse nine, when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in the front and in the rear, meaning they're surrounded, he selected from all the choice men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arame Arameans. But the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. They're back to back. Okay, they're surrounded and they, they line up back to back. And he says, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. That's verse 11. And then it comes to verse 12. And understand, he's about to say something to a group of men who know, apparent, who know they're probably going to die. And apparently, the uh, people are watching all of this. The people are on the hills or something. They're watching this battle. In verse 12, this is what he says. Be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what's good in his sight. Be strong and courageous, which is whatever is coming against you, obey. For the sake of the people, and in this context, for the sake of your wife, <clears throat> excuse me, for the sake of your children, and anybody else that's watching you, be strong and courageous. And then he says, um, for the cities of our God, and that's for the reputation of Christ. 
You know, in Matthew it says, don't be afraid of those who can kill you. Be afraid of him who can take your soul, who, who can kill your soul. Um, you know, and in the context of a family, you know, I can promise you your wife will be opposed to you. And I don't, I, I don't know most of your wives, but I do know what Genesis 3 says, and I hope you do too, that there is an opposition after the curse, because of the curse, your wife will be opposed to you. I don't know your children, but I promise you your children will be opposed to you. They will. And man, it's easy to say this now. A few years ago, nobody really saw this, but the culture's opposed to you, which is really a nice way of saying Satan is opposed to you. You have a lot of forces lined up against you. We're supposed to be strong and courageous. And what, what that means is, even when there's opposition, you are to lead your family, you're to provide for your family, and you're to protect your family. Those three purposes were established all the way back in the garden before sin entered the world. That is God's role for you and for me. And then you can go be an accountant and a whatever else you are. But at its core, if you're not leading and if you're not providing and you're not protecting as God designed, you're not obeying. And, and, um, and so in the face of the opposition, um, be strong and courageous. I think the next field of battle, they've already come after the church and they're not done, by the way. I think Neil mentioned that. I hope you understand they're coming. I know I sound, it sounds dark and conspiracy nut to say it this way, but they are coming for you. You understand that? You've been, at, you've been directed and given the authority to lead and teach and provide for and care for your family. And the church, or excuse me, the state is coming to supersede that role. Um, be strong and courageous. Um, don't be afraid. Um, and um, the other thing I'll say about that, 1 Corinthians 16, that famous verse, I used to coach football and every halftime somebody would come in and read this verse. Um, it's supposedly the verse written to men. Let's see if I can find it here. It's the end of the day and I'm an accountant. Um, uh, let's see, oh yeah, verse 13. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like what? Right? Yeah, there you go, I was about to say that. Act like men, be strong. And we love to hear that verse, and we think it's a hua uh, verse, and it kind of is, but maybe not for the reasons you think. That verse was not written to men. Do you understand that? It was written about men, men that you want to be. It was written to the wives, to the children, to the mothers, the fathers, the grandparents. And in a church like Corinth was at the time, Paul is saying, you need to be on the alert, you need to stand firm in the faith, and you need to look around you at the men and follow their example and be strong. God give us men, and I know he has, who are strong and courageous, who know what they're here for, who in the face of opposition are committed to doing it so that the rest of the church can look to the men and have confidence in the Lord. In other words, be strong and courageous for the sake of the people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do whatever 
he's going to do. Amen. It sounds like you so perfectly tied that in the beginning, Chris, to the ultimate motivation behind being strong is trusting in the Lord, knowing his attributes contributes to that. And obeying based on that. I love that. So we can confidently say that the attributes of God are at the motivational level of us being strong as men. Yes. And the church is built on strong men. Families are built on strong men. Um, Those institutions are designed by God to be led by men, by the way. Government is not. Um, The family is led by a by a father and a husband. The church is led by elders and deacons and men in the church who serve. Um, we need to act like men. And, if, and, you know, the other thing, just to say, the next verse, by the way, says, let all you do be done in love. And so this goes back to part of your question about, talk about strength. Every time you see be strong and courageous, it is in the context of obedience and in the context of what God's going to do. The other thing that you will find is that there's a gentleness. Be strong in the grace that um, is in Christ Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, the Hua verse is followed by um, a statement that it's all done in love. Um, That's the context that we lead and that we're courageous. Courage isn't from being able to shoot a gun really well, throw a football really well, make baskets, climb a mountain. Um, work long hours, um, sleep two hours a night, and still get it all done. It is simple. It is knowing who God is. And out of that knowing who God is, the humility of submitting to that God, obeying to that God, and that is what is, uh, that's what defines that strength. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Um, so before we segue into our second part of this Q&A sessions, which, by the way, gentlemen, will be in an open Q&A. I I forgot to mention that in the beginning, we'll have an open Q&A time where we'll go around with the mic and you can ask Chris whatever's on your heart pertaining to leadership, and it's open to other questions as well. Um, But Chris, before we get there, maybe we can finish this part with talking about what are the most important things a man should be doing in his life to cultivate this sort of spiritual leadership, habits and whatnot, disciplines? Well, I, I think of Second Timothy 2, 2, it's parallel to what I, I showed you in Deuteronomy 6. The things which you've learned from others and trust to faithful men um, who will tell others also. And so I think... Um, it's being in the process of being taught and teaching. And I know for uh, probably a lot of men, you might think I'm not a teacher. And I have to tell you, if you're in a family context, you are, in a, teach- you are a teacher and you need to learn how to teach. Um, not necessarily stand in a pulpit or in front of um, hundreds of people or thousands of people, but in front of the most important people in your life, which is your wife and your children and then your grandchildren, to be able to speak the word of God and to learn from others. And along with that is accountability to other men. Um, As much as we're to be men who can be imitated, we're told throughout scripture that we are to imitate other men. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. There are some amazing men in this room um, who are in front of you week in and week out, and they're here to help you. And at some point, the goal is to hand off the baton so that you run out ahead. 
Um, it's not that you're always um, um, as needy maybe as you might be now for that input. It's taking that input, um, um, building it into your life, and then um, turning it to others. Um, later on in 2 Timothy, by the way, Paul's talking to a young man when he says, the things which you've heard in the presence of others entrust to other faithful men who will tell others. Later on, he reminds Timothy that the people who told him and taught him the word of God was his grandmother and his aunt. And just so that you know, um, those ladies that are at home right now taking care of the home front are also teachers. And they have enormous influence. And what you and I are, are uh, to do in the home environment is to do everything we can to increase the influence of their mom. Um, and I, I think that would be returned by her. But Proverbs 31, for example, isn't a list of all the things your wife needs to do to be a good wife. It's a list for you and I to read as a list of what we should talk to our children about, about why mom is such an extraordinary lady, um, to build her influence. All of that, not for personal, but to increase the influence of the word of God. Speak the word of God be taught the word of God. Um, and um, that's the chain that you all are in right now. And I guess I'm commending you. That's really the answer to the question is I'm talking to a group of men who are in that process and I commend you. I know it's a commitment. Um, getting here on a Wednesday night, I was reminded tonight, takes, took me about almost an hour. It's worth it, isn't it? It's so good to be together. It's so good to be with other men. Um, to have other men pouring into you. There's a man here tonight, I won't embarrass him, who um, when I was coming out of college was extraordinarily influential in my life. There's two or three men outside of my father who had um, the greatest impact, one of them sitting in this room tonight. Um, it, it, there's no way I could ever thank or repay that other than, and he would say this, to turn around and do the same for others. And so this is not an end here for you. This is a means to an end for you to build your family and build the church and um, other men to be able to follow you for you to teach. Amen. Chris, could you maybe just touch upon something very practical, maybe personal devotions and even devotions within the family, with the family, with the wife specifically? Yeah, you know, everybody does it different. Um, I'm not a preacher. Um, I'm an accountant, so I had to be careful. I, I didn't want to subject my family to an introduction, three points, and a conclusion every night. Um, and I did, I did believe in the power of the Word of God. So I'll just tell you, I'll answer your question. I'll tell you all what I did for whatever it's worth. This is May 10th. We, on the 10th day of the month, we would have read, read Proverbs chapter 10. And yesterday we would have read Proverbs 9, and tomorrow we would read Proverbs 11. So what happened over the years is um, every month we would get through the book of Proverbs. Um, and uh, that happened for years. And the, at the beginning it was just to read it, and there's a couple things I did with it. One is I would read the first half of a verse and stop and see if anybody could finish the verse. And it became a contest. I never made it a contest. Kids will be kids. And um, they memorized a good portion of Proverbs uh, by doing that. The second thing is um, it was conversation. 
So, for example, the verse that says, never grab a dog by the ears, I forget what chapter that's in, I think it's 26 or something, I would call the dog over and grab him by his ears, and they would get to see what Buckley did when I grabbed the dog by the ears. And that's the beauty of Proverbs. It's the crea creative ingenuity through the Holy Spirit of the writer of Proverbs to take practical life and draw out of practical life biblical principles and to take biblical principles and draw them to practical life. Um, Proverbs 6, go to the ant, O sluggard. You understand that's a dad talking to his son. He called his son a name. I don't recommend it. I'm just telling you. But that dad took his son and he saw a line of ants. And whereas my inclination is to kill those ants, I don't know what yours is, his inclination was to teach. And, um, and so that's where Proverbs was such a benefit to us. Um, and the early questions, you know, about Proverbs were maybe a little silly. And as the kids got older, um, sometimes there would be extraordinary conversations over what is in Proverbs. If you have daughters like I did, um, you might want to call in sick on the 5th, 6th, and 7th of the month. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, read Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 with um, you're uh, reading that out loud to a daughter in mind. I'm kidding about calling in sick. It was hard. It's very graphic. It's talking about prostitutes and um, how, to have, how to be an adulterer, and it talks about how not to be an adulterer. And a seven-year-old may not grasp it, but a 12-year-old or at some age they do, let the word of God preach. Um, no topic with your kids should be off, um, out of bounds. And using Proverbs like that lets the word of God preach, lets the word of God expose these issues and it starts conversations that otherwise might not start. So that's what we did and why we did it. And it was tremendously beneficial. I guess if my daughters were up here, you know them, probably some of you, you can go ask them if, uh, what they thought of it. They may give you a different perspective. Well, thank you for giving us a little sort of peek into your personal life. And yeah, we can definitely see the benefit of that. Um, Chris, thank you so much uh, for, for doing this. I think we very thoroughly touched all the different areas of spiritual leadership um, and from the perspective of our own leadership and our faithful elders. So thank you so much, guys. If we can give Chris a round of applause. No, we're not done. We're almost done. Now, Chris, we're going to enter into a little Q&A with the men. We're going to let the mics flow, and we're going to see what's on the heart of the men. And again, spiritual leadership and open up to other topics as well. Um, so raise your hand if you've got a question. We're going to come around with some mics and put Chris in the hot seat, but be blessed. So here we go. There's a hand right here. So, Chris, most of us have heard the old commercial, I've fallen and I can't get up. Yes. But we're men, and we fall. Yeah. How, how can an elder, a deacon, a man who's fallen get up? And can a man be fully restored? 
Yeah, the, the answer to that is yes, of course. A man who has fallen can get up. Um, the answer is that a man who's a believer, who was a believer before he fell, um, there's no need for restoration of his salvation. There is a need for restoration in his relationship with, with Lord and maybe with human beings who he has sinned against. All of that is possible by the power and the grace of God. Um, uh, Hebrews 12 talks about, it's a classic passage on discipline, the discipline of the Lord, that the Lord disciplines those who he loves. And so when there is a fall and there is repentance, there can be restoration. And that does not shield any of us from consequences. So the human cost of that often is broken human relationships, and depending on the level of the fall, some of those relationships cannot be restored, won't be restored. Um, that's part of living in a fallen world with other sinners. So the second half of your question about can a man be restored, it depends. The one certainty we have is that the Lord forgives, and he restores. That's amazing, amazing grace. Um, beyond that, when you're dealing with human beings, you can't always be restored. And that's a consequence, and in some sense, that might be the discipline of the Lord. Another thing that you might be referring to is a man, you mentioned elders. So when a man falls in ministry, um, he is no longer a one-woman man. He can be restored in relationship to of course, with the Lord, with the other elders, with the rest of the church, but he won't be restored to the role of an elder because at least for some extended time, um, he is not qualified as a one-woman man. He's not above reproach. Um, so I hope I haven't made a simple question complicated. Does that answer your question? Okay, great. Hello, um, Stephen. It was a pleasure to meet you Hi, a few Stephen. weeks ago. Um, so as a newly married man with a son coming in about a month, awesome. um, I just uh, wanted to know, uh, as I would desire to maybe be in a similar position as you, what do you think along during your marriage and, and fatherhood was your biggest sin struggle and how did you lean on the Lord and how did he guide you through that? Yeah, there's no question. The biggest sin struggle in my life is pride, and it manifested itself so many ways. My wife bore the brunt of that. My um, children bore the brunt of that. Um, in ministry, the church bore the brunt of that. And uh, I'll never forget an older man sitting me down. Uh, it was actually in a restaurant called Millie's in Simi Valley. Um, and he, in about a 45-minute breakfast, wrecked me completely. Um, because I finally heard. And I went home and told my wife what he said to me. And of course, she looked at me like, well, I've been saying that for 10 years now. Um, that's, the, that's, the, uh, the, that's why I love the church. I love this. I, you know, if Proverbs 1 says, a fool rejects the rebuke, runs away from the rebuke, runs away from the correction. The difference between a fool and a wise man is that a wise man seeks it. And that rebuke, those, those challenges um, will save you so much in this world. I'm not saying it saves your soul. Christ does that. Um, and so that man in Millie's that morning gave me um, um, 
some things that I needed to do different, and I heard him, and I did it, um, and I still struggle with, with pride, um, but I have a lot of regrets. The early years of my marriage, the early years as a father, um, so you're asking me about me, that's me. That may not be you. You know, one of the things he told me was, um, stop telling people your opinion when nobody's asking for it. It's pretty profound. Um, if I would have embraced that um, as a much younger man, ministry would have been a lot better, marriage would have been a lot better, my parenting would have been a lot better. And there's disciplines that, because of that, I built into my life that makes doing this tonight really uncomfortable for me. Um, I, I, because I, um, I really control how much I express my opinion and my thoughts to other people. And I'm sure there's people here that might not care what I have to say. I'm concerned about that. Not for your sake, but for mine. Um, so that one thing that he told me is so simple. It was so profound to me. Stop telling people what they're not asking you for, your opinions and your thoughts, and even the Bible. He said even stop giving people answers out of the Bible that they're not looking for. Yeah, it was some great advice. I still write to that man and thank him all these years later, 25 years later, um, for his ministry in my life. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? There's somebody over here that needs uh, a microphone. Hello. Oh, I'm sorry. Yep, I hear you. Wow. Is that Romans? Like yes, it's me, Romans. And I'm still working on my middle name, chapter 8. <laughs> so uh, the first thing is I just wanted to say thank you so much for your practical insights as a husband, a leader of the house. And my, I have kind of like twofold questions According to the book of Proverbs, would you agree that godly leadership starts at home when male children choose to obey and honor the instruction of their parents? And if you were a father of sons, where would you start in teaching your sons about the godly leadership? Well, I guess I don't know because I didn't have sons. Um... No, I, I think I would start in Genesis. I say Ann and I are involved in a young professionals Bible study. There's a couple hundred people that show up here on Friday nights, and I say this in there. Not everybody likes to hear this, but I would start in Genesis and teach my son that who you marry is optional, when you get married is optional, but whether you get married is not optional. God created you to be married. And if you start thinking about the implications of that, the implications on your parenting, on the purposeful um, nature of your, your uh, conversations with your sons, with how you teach them and train them that you are preparing them to leave your home, you're not preparing them to be your son, you're preparing them to be a man. And the Bible defines manhood as a husband. It's just that simple. Obviously, there's exceptions to that. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about that singleness is a gift, that singleness is purposeful, and I think it also makes the case that singleness is rare. Um, and, and that's a separate topic. So if I had had a son, he would have left my home 
long time knowing that God created him to be married and to be a, a, a good husband and a father. Um, and I think reading through Proverbs, you're right, um, also lays all of that out. Um, um, but that's, I guess that's the, the first answer that comes to my, to my mind. Hope that answers your question, Romans. There's somebody, a couple up here that, oh, you have a microphone, good. Uh, hi, Chris, thanks for your time. Uh, I am expecting my first daughter in two weeks. Yes. And so uh, I'm just curious, uh, what are, what's your advice for uh, raising a daughter? Um, you know, some, what would you tell me? Uh, yeah. Love every minute of it. Um, girls rule and boys drool. That became a thing in my house when my oldest daughter came home from school, uh, uh, kindergarten, five years old, first week of school, and she's just pushing her dinner around her plate and she's just staring at it and sighing. Just was off in la-la land and I finally go, what is the problem? And she says, I can't stop thinking about him. Five years old. That's when I first said, look, um, girls rule and boys drool. Get over it. Um, um, I hope she doesn't hear this recording. I don't know if it's okay to tell that story. Um, I, I enjoyed every minute of it. In my home, what I did that I would tell you, and I don't know that it works for you, but um, um, I uh, dialed in to my wife, Anne, in parenting daughters from the get-go. I asked her to, she's a daughter. She had a dad. They had their relationship. Um, and so I told her, I need you to help me raise daughters. So she is the one that told me, date your daughters. Um, she was always helpful to tell me, look, uh, D2, as we used to call them, daughter one, daughter two, daughter three. D2 needs some attention. Um, and of course, when you give special attention to your second daughter, the other two are lined up. They want their moment also. Um, enjoy every moment of that. Um, um, it was based on counsel that Ann gave me. Each of the three girls, before they went to kindergarten, I took them on a week up in the high Sierras, just dad and daughter. Um, that's a really humbling experience because you're going to have to do hair. And... Um, I'll tell you, all three of those were extraordinarily memorable. Um, one was difficult, very difficult week. Um, but to get in a tent, just mom or, or dad and daughter, teach them how to fish, you know, go hunt bears, whatever it is, the stuff that guys do, um, make, them, make them part of that life, part of that world. And the third thing I would say is, you know, I wanted sons. Um, and I wasn't disappointed when my daughters came, but I kind of wondered why didn't I get sons? Um, but what a blessing, what a joy. And I, I made it a point that I wanted to be in their world. So I didn't force my children to adopt my interests. I adopted theirs, which by the way is why I played football when I was younger. Now I'm a runner. I had a daughter who was a runner. I hate running, um, but I would run because I wanted to spend time with her and we would have amazing conversations. Actually, it would be monologues. I can't run and talk. 
I've never been able to do that. But a girl can talk. Um, and when you get in their element, that's what happens. Um, I had a daughter who played volleyball. We would go to the high school for hours, and I would slam balls at her because uh, she was a setter. And great conversation. So get in their world. Don't make them get in yours. Um, so that's the first couple things that come to mind. And did I say enjoy every minute of it? It is so great. It's just wonderful. Hey, Chris. Over here on the left. Your left. Okay, thank you. <laughs> hey, I know you, hey, Michael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How you doing? Yeah. So this question, I guess, more so pertains to those of us men that are single or, I guess, in a relationship yet to be married. But in regards to spiritual leadership and spiritually leading our spouses or significant others, um, for those of us men that are still single, would you recommend that we kind of out of love and respect for our sisters in Christ who could potentially be those longer term partners, would you recommend that we sort of remove ourselves purposefully from the, I guess, dating landscape, so to speak, until we feel that we are 100% capable of being that spiritual leader in that, you know, homeward relationship? And then a second kind of part question would be, would a certain degree of spiritual maturity above that of your significant other be a requirement to, I guess, a biblically-based marriage? Well, I'll tell you what um, I tell young ladies, including my own daughters, um, when they were in that process, is you're not marrying a finished product, you're marrying a trajectory. No, you should not wait until you think you're ready. If you have any measure of humility at all, you will go the rest of your years on this earth thinking you're not adequate and you're not capable and you have um, a ways to go. And maybe it's just me. I'm 35 years into it and I'm still figuring it out and still addressing weaknesses and failures. And um, so no, don't wait until you're ready. I, I tell young parents the same thing. Don't wait till you can afford it to have babies. Um, you'll never be able to afford a baby. You just do it and uh, hope you make it. And guess what? You make it because you have to. And so the commitment is um, um, if you're dating a young lady, well, let me say it this way. You get to choose the one to love. And then the rest of your life is loving the one you chose. The rest of your life, no matter what happens, what comes your way, you love the one you chose the rest of your life. She's it. She's the only one. Um, uh, Christ quoted Genesis 2.24 about leaving your father and mother and clinging to your wife, and then he adds a commentary and says, what God brings together, let no man separate. There it all is. Um, so... <clears throat> Fortunately, um, if you're single, you don't really know what marriage is about. And the other side of that is fortunately she doesn't either. So you might be able to convince her to marry you. Do it. And then learn it together. Um, I think the priority is to find a woman who loves the Lord, who loves the church. I think that's really important. That's why church is a great place to find a spouse. Um, and, uh, and together, if there's a commitment to Christ and there's a commitment to the church, everything else 
isn't happy and roses and wonderful, but everything else works out. Did I get both parts of your question? Yeah. Okay, so spiritual maturity. Um, I don't think I, I would want to say you should be more mature than her uh, because unfortunately my observation is young men just aren't as mature as young ladies at a certain age. But what there is is a trajectory um, and there is a commitment and a purposeful living. A young man who understands my purpose in life is to lead, to provide, and to protect, and to love. Um, and he can articulate that. And it's not just a dream but it, or, and a goal, uh, but it is in process. There are steps being taken along that way. The other side of that equation is a young lady who understands you're not Jesus, because you're not, but she... Um, loves you amazingly and wants to submit to your leadership. And she won't in perfection, but if, if that's what you find, don't let her get away. Okay? Marriage is a good thing. There's a hand over here. Oh, right here? Yeah. Uh, throughout this Q&A session, uh, you've made reference to a lot of uh, people that have been kind of advisors or mentors. Yeah. Um, did you aggressively like pursue mentorship or did like people come to you or how, how did that occur? Because it's, yeah. Yeah. The way it worked here at Grace Church as I grew up and even to this day is until you get out of high school, they're assigned to you. Um, so in youth group, you have a small group leader that's assigned to you. And, and back when I was going through that process and to this day, um, young people are, are, um, um, exposed to that kind of a relationship and then trained to once you're outside of um, that age group, um, it is all over scripture about seeking people like that. And we've talked about that. So yes, I have been very aggressive, very blessed. I could walk through um, a series of men who um, have mentored me and who mentor me to this day. Um, and um, what they... Um, how they mentored me, the books we went through, or the conversations we had. That is normal Christianity. That's fellowship in the church. And I think I referenced already Proverbs 1, that a wise man seeks the rebuke, seeks the correction, seeks that kind of accountability and direction. But there's also the verses of follow them, follow others as they follow Christ. And so, yes, it is deliberate. It is... Um, 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 by design, and I think it's even a matter of obedience. That command to imitate others is a command. So I don't think you just let it happen. You look around you, people in your life, who do you want to be like? That's who I want to be like. I'm going to follow that person. And I'm not talking about meetings at Starbucks. I'm talking about life on life, watching somebody's life and learning from it. Okay, does that answer it? What was your name, by the way? Jim. Thanks, Jim. Yep. Hi, but, oh. Is that Felix? No. Nope. Sorry. The glare. Okay. Chris. Yeah. Here you go. Oh, back here? Yeah. I have a question. Uh, if you have, like you said, you have three children, and let's say one of them wants to transition to, the, uh, to be a man, how are you going to consult the other children to say, we're still going to love this, uh, your brother or sister. 
despite of living in sin. Despite living in sin? Yeah. And you're talking about siblings or parents? No, the parents consulting their children says, your brother or sister's yeah. transition to male or female, how are you going to consult them despite of one of their siblings living in sin? Yeah, okay. Um, it's the same answer, as, I'm going to broaden it a little bit. Um, it's the same answer as I would say for if your kid, my kids were raised in public school basically. Um, they saw a lot of kids in sin. So whether it's a sibling, an aunt, an uncle, or friends at school or enemies at school, the command in scripture is to love. Love covers a multitude of sins. That means it doesn't ignore sin, but there's an ambivalence to, particularly in a sibling, there's an ambivalence to that sin in terms of the permanence of the relationship. That's the first thing. The second thing is um, that maturity in your child is evident when they can be around somebody who's in sin and not allow that to affect their behavior. And so, the, you know, the, the easiest application of that is, um, you know, we bought a big house uh, as early as we could and it wasn't to have a big house, it was because our kids were in public school and <clears throat> we wanted to have all their friends from public school socializing at our house. Uh, because we wanted to be a part of it. We wanted to uh, control it to some degree. <laughs> we wanted to be aware of what's going on. And so we got, um, it, was a, it was wonderful. It happened when the, when the girls were in college, they did the same thing. They brought all their friends home. We have a lot of friends um, who are not saved, who were in our home because of that. And it also gave us the ability to watch how our daughters were affected or not affected by the influence of those who are in sin. And so I think the perspective to teach your children is you are no better than them, okay? You're a sinner. I think of uh, Luke 19 where Christ is telling the parable and he, and he defines pride um, and then he goes on to describe what humility looks like in, in its, it's the gospel. Um, and the point, one of the aspects of that is that maturity is you don't let somebody else affect your behavior and you don't look down on other people. Um, you know, they're a, uh, an adulterer. Well, if you read the, the Sermon on the Mount, God defined adulterer um, pretty dramatically and drastically. Such were some of you, but you were saved, you were washed, you were cleaned. Um, so uh, I think the perspective is you love everybody and stop judging their sin. And let's talk about whether you're allowing the pattern of their life to impact your behavior. Um, and to the extent it is, and often it is affecting their behavior, that's an opportunity to um, uh, develop their maturity in that regard. Okay. Name's Bill Wood. Um, Hi, Bill. I had uh, the privilege of marrying my wife back in 1977 in a Jewish temple over in Santa Monica. I was a non-believer, mm. and at that time I committed uh, to raising our kids in the Jewish faith, and, and, and I did that faithfully uh, up until uh, I became a Christian. And then I continued to love my family, and care for them and 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 uh, and uh, but 
Um, I brought, I took peace away from our family and brought turmoil into the house. The church here has a ministry for the women who are unequally yoked, but I haven't seen anything for the men. Hmm. And I don't know, maybe it's pretty unique, my situation, but I, I got to guess there's got to be some other men in this, uh, ch- in this uh, church that have, are unequally yoked. Um, and I was just wondering if there's a ministry like that here that I don't know about. Yeah, well, I'll confirm for you that there are men in Grace Church who are unequally yoked. There's a lot of them. Um, so you're not alone. Um, the second thing I will tell you is there's not a ministry specifically for them except right here, being with other men. And um, I think the, you know, I'm shooting from the hip here a little bit. I think that the unequally yoked women's ministry is based on the difficulty of not only is there, uh, the, I'll say the unique difficulty of a woman who's married to an unsaved man, the Bible addresses that directly and specifically in 1 Peter 2, but it's, and there is the difficulty of not having that faith in common, but the second thing is her calling to submit to her husband, regardless of whether he's saved or not. Um, and I think that's the, the genesis of that ministry of addressing those issues. And I understand there's difficulties um, the other way. So I, I'm just, uh, that, that's why I think that ministry was started at Grace Church, and maybe it's time for you to start a new ministry. Well, I had that thought. Okay. It'd be exciting. That's how every ministry at Grace Church started. Somebody saw a need, and with accountability and camaraderie with other men, um, they uh, started a meeting or um, a, uh, an affinity group like that, and some of those are here 30, 40 years later. Pray about it. I think it'd be great. Yes. Chris Ramon Sanchez here. Hi. Hello. Um, earlier you touched a little bit on, you know, the trials that we had with uh, the, the government. Yeah. And you said we're not done yet. Okay, is there anything in the wings that, you know, we should know so we could uh, be geared up? I know persecution is coming. You know, just read, your, you know, revelations, it's coming. But uh, anything specific that uh, you, you were alluding to? Yeah, a couple things. One is persecution is here. And I, it doesn't get talked about publicly a lot. But there are a number of people in Grace Church, a large number of people in the last three years that have lost their jobs, their ability to make a living because they are Christians. Um, It's pretty, um, it's happened in the LA Unified School District quite a bit. Uh, It's happening in law enforcement. Um, It's happening in big corporations who have become aggressively um, Marxist. Um, And, So persecution is here. Um, And some of you have experienced that and um, you know what I'm talking about. To go up maybe to the 10,000 foot level um, as it relates to the church, there's three things that the Bible says that that you understand that Christ is the head of the church. He's our creator, he created the church, he's the head of the church, he makes the rules. And there's three areas that Christ made very clear in Scripture that are the domain of the church, not the government. One is practice. 
Um, and that was the first attack that we've experienced here, you may not meet. That is in direct um, um, conflict with the clear command of Scripture that we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And even in the very word church in Scripture, it's ecclesia, which means in the original language, it's a regular physical gathering of, of believers. So that was the first wave, and we've experienced that. The other two are um, polity and doctrine. Polity could very well be the next one. They've backed off here in California, but they were moving pretty aggressively that every nonprofit would um, have to have on the oversight board. By polity, it's governance. So the board of directors of a, of a nonprofit would have to have female and LGBTQ alphabet soup representation. I don't think there's any doubt that that's coming here, that to maintain tax-exempt status or even existence under the laws of the state of California, you will, we will be required to have um, uh, women and um, LGBTQ representation on the board. Just so you know, don't tell anybody, but that will never happen at Grace Church. And that's not a political statement. That's not a statement of rebellion. That is a statement of obedience to the clear, plain spoken command of the Bible on how the church is to be led from a polity standpoint. The third area is, is the third area is doctrine. And um, our current president has made it very clear, as well as the governor of California, that they consider Romans 1 to be hate speech. Um, they passed a law in Canada outlawing um, anything negative about um, trans, homosexual, that whole thing, gender, which is why I broke the law this weekend. Um, but, um, and it, when they passed that law in Canada, if you were paying attention, John preached that morning on all of those issues, as did thousands of pastors around the world in solidarity with the pastors in Canada who did the same thing. Um, that is where we're going in the United States. So there is a day coming when it will be illegal to um, uh, preach the word of God, certain elements of the word of God. I pray uh, to God we will n never hear that Grace Church um, compromised on that at all. So practice, polity, doctrine, those are the areas. They are coming. There is no doubt about it. Um, uh, Joe Biden has gone off script a couple times, I think, and said that there's a pandemic coming, which is really interesting. If you know the nature of real pandemics, they're somewhat unpredictable. But he's telling us it's coming. And if you listen to that man talk, he tells you what's coming before it comes. Um, so I, I firmly believe it's going to happen again. I don't know when. And I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but that's, I think, what Neil and others, and, and I am referencing when I tell you that we're not done with this. And, and by the way, 2020, and I could go start talking about 2020 and essential church and tell stories all night long. <clears throat> uh, the beauty of what happened at Grace Church in 2020 is that the people of Grace Church led us back to church. Um, the people of Grace Church 
led that movement to come back here because they got tired of the nonsense and tired of the lies. And um, once the riots started happening in LA, that's when Grace Church started flooding back. And so I think the future is very bright. I'm very, um, I'm not afraid of any of that. That's just, and nor should you be. It's just be strong and courageous. Um, gird up your loins and, um, and, and be ready. And the best place to uh, start and uh, do that is in your homes. Okay. Chris, we'll do just two more uh, quick, if that's okay with you. It's, this is your show. Okay, we'll do two more. All right. right over there. Uh, hi, Chris. Uh, thank hi. you again for uh, uh, being here this evening. Um, so I have a question going, <clears throat> excuse me, another question for us single men. Um, I don't know if you heard about the recent survey where it says uh, I think 65% um, of all males under 30 are completely single. Yeah. Um, so, and I think... Um, uh, a lot of it has to do with the hostility in our culture towards um, towards men, um, and so with that in mind, knowing that um, we have to deal with a lot of like um, the the Me Too movement, feminism, um, it could be kind of uh, well, not kind of, but very discouraging for us uh, single men trying to find you know a godly spouse. Obviously, we want to find somebody who's uh, in the church, but uh, those factors certainly don't help. Uh, so what advice uh, could you give to us that would uh, encourage us when we want to find somebody in, that, in this uh, hostile environment or the hostile society? Okay, I, I love it. I won't talk about the macro level. I'm gonna talk about you, the micro, and anybody else here that's single. I think there's a couple things you need to be assured of. One is if you desire to be married, you do not have the gift of singleness, okay? And if you desire marriage, it is a, um, a desire that God has built into you and placed in your heart, and it is a God-given desire. It is a holy desire. Um, the third thing, given the first two points, is pursue it. And I, I hear what you're saying. There's headwinds. Um, but, and, and I have anecdotal evidence. I don't have scientific evidence, but my observation and I'm not talking about you, is guys are afraid. They lack courage and they lack strength. And, um, and that looks like they're afraid to um, deal with all of the headwinds you're talking about. And I don't hear you saying that. Look, if you're called to be married and you desire to be married and you know from the Bible that you were created to be married, you're not gonna let these headwinds um, stop you. They will certainly this is exactly what I was talking about. There is always opposition to obeying God's command. There always is, there always will be. And so I don't, I, I say this to encourage you that the battle you're in is worth it. Um, and it should be a matter that you're committed to prayer. Um, I, I had a couple of men in my life at that stage in my life. I walked around with a BTR card. Do you know what BTR is? Bachelor's till the rapture. I mean, you know, things have changed in 35 years, but I was so not into the dating scene. I was so not into pursuing any of that. And I had older men who loved me, loved me well and planted their foot in uh, the back end here and said, get, get to it. And, and they didn't just say that, but they were, they, I'm sure they were praying for me and they were, um, they were my uh, cheerleading section. So 
if there's single guys here, and I know there are, and you're in small groups, and that's an issue for you, I don't know why you wouldn't tell, and maybe you have, tell all the men around you and say, would you pray with me and would you help me? Um, and I think uh, that's one of the beauties of the church, okay? And not to make you uh, want it more, but just to tell you it's a good thing you're pursuing. It's a great thing. So, so there's one more, I guess. Hey, Chris. Okay. Um, what advice could you give uh, fathers who have teenagers and specific teenage daughters who are difficult at times and potentially need godly discipline? Um, how did that look like in your home and what advice do you have? Yeah. First of all, this will sound crazy to you because it sounds like you might be in the battle of it right now. Enjoy every minute of it. Um, and the first thing is, you and your wife have to be on the same page. Um, and sometimes it means you pull back out of uh, the discipline process and you huddle and you talk about and you um, agree on some things. And what should you agree on? Well, this all comes out of Hebrews 12. So I'm gonna run a lot of stuff past you. All of you can open Hebrews 12 and it's laid out right there. The discipline of the Lord is and there's 13 references to the family in, in chapter 12. So it's like the church and marriage. The discipline of the Lord for us mirrors discipline for our children. And discipline is rooted in, in discipleship and relationship. There's, a, there's an intimacy. And so if the discipline isn't working, you got to pull back and work on the relationship. And this is critical for dads um, that you... Uh, you should know your daughters better than anybody knows your daughters. That was always my goal. And of course, that's not true today because they're married and gone. And that's okay. I'm talking about when they're in your home. The second thing is realize that you're dealing with a serious issue. The discipline deals with sin. Discipline is not about training them to think like you think, to vote like you're gonna vote, to um, share your opinions, or even to make all the choices that you would make. Discipline is designed for issues of sin. So if you cannot articulate sin, that may be why the discipline process isn't working. So it's gotta be a sin issue. Um, it's, uh, um, discipline is, um, well, I'll stop there. I, I'm going through my whole outline from uh, Hebrews 12. But you can read Hebrews 12. I guess the last thing I would say is understand that discipline is not punishment. Punishment is reserved for God and he's delegated the authority for punishment to government. It's interesting. Everywhere in the family um, context, and, he, and talking about God's discipline of those whom he loves, it's not punishment. We've been saved. There is no more punishment. Discipline of the Lord for us, therefore us for our daughters and sons, is for correction, it's for training, it's for um, their good. And one of the things that Ann and I always did with our daughters is we always, we told them a lot that we loved them and we told them we were for them. And they don't believe you, they eventually will. And the discipline process is evidence of that. Um, it will be evidence for them for a while that you don't love them and you're not for them. But when the lights go on and they mature, they understand all of that was evidence that you do love them and that you are for them. And I'll just finish with this. Make sure you do love them and make sure you are for them. Um, 
outside of that context, the discipline in Hebrews 12 would never be effective. Okay, and if I didn't answer all of that, I'll be around afterwards. I'd love to carry that on if you need. All right, men. Let's thank Chris one more time. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much. We have been blessed, thoroughly blessed. Thank you. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your example. Um, can you send us off in prayer? Pray for these men. Lord, thank you for these men. Thank you for the example they are to Grace Church, their commitment to being taught, um, to be trained, to be matured um, through the speaking of the Word of God and through accountability. Lord, I pray that you bless each of these men. Give them the strength and the courage in a, in a dark world um, to obey you humbly so that they would be an example um, and a servant for their wife, for their children. I do pray for the young men in this room who are not married, who desire to be married. Lord, I pray that you would bring them a wife, that you would, as we know you will. This is a prayer we know you'll answer. I pray that you would do that quickly, if that's your will. And I pray for um, these men that they would maintain um, their purity and their preparation for marriage so that they're ready when when that time comes. Thank you for such a great salvation. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the blessing and the gift that the church is in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Men, you are dismissed.